making sense of it all. Helping you gain insight and take control of your wealth creation journey. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Making Sense of It All, where we are talking all things wealth creation, money management to financial freedom and everything in between. My name is Jared Brooks, and I'm a director of the, within the Financial Advisory Division here at Vincent's. And I'm Brett Griffiths, the Director of Superannuation Advisory here at Vincent's also. Ready to go for our first topic? I'm ready, Jared. It's good. So today's segments, obviously, we'll cover topical topics. We've got a couple interesting ones there on, on my list anyway. Um, <laughs> In-depth discussion will be with Paul Green, who's uh, also a director here at Vincent's within our Forensic Accounting Division. Uh, he'll be touching on all things Royal Commission and Financial Advisory. Uh, he's got a wealth of knowledge we can uh, question him on today, which yep. will be very interesting. He's a bit of a character, loves a yarn. It's a, it's a very good discussion, actually. Yeah, it should be good. Uh, Michael Lee will deliver a, a tasty red review. And finally, we'll wrap things up with an economic summary from Dr. Iran Kalish from Deloitte. Um, it was a heavy read, but some interesting content in that one. Yeah, yeah, very interesting, actually. So let's jump into uh, topical topics, Brett. So what's your first topical topic, Brett? Well, Jared, I've got a couple here that I, uh, I just thought might be of interest for our listeners. So the first one is around is more for our small employers that might be listening. Uh, there's a, this concept of single-touch payroll. So that's where all employers basically have to pay employees using um, software that allows them to report both the wages and the superannuation to the tax office on a regular basis. So this is Big Brother playing its role, getting essentially lifetime, real-time data uh, in relation to money that they're paying on behalf or to people. There's been some discussion around uh, this notion of the um, the robo debt recovery system that the tax office uh, and, and Centrelink are using, this is where they're getting this data from. This is where they're doing their data matching, their analytics, so they can say, "Hey, you're earning more than what you said you were going to be." So therefore, we want to claim some of our money back. Yeah, it's so, going to be a plus for both sides, though, right? It's going to be look, once you get through the clunkiness of it all. As a tax agent, it's the the transparency of that data is fantastic. Um, because what it means is we can actually we have more transparency of what's going on, um, which is really good. Um, but to me, is this is almost the tip of the iceberg. Where is it going to be leading to? So are we going to be at a point in, say, five years where individuals will no longer need to do a tax return because the ATO has all your data? They have everything. They already have your dividend income, your interest income. They already know when you buy and sell properties. They do data analytics, uh, looking for uh, unusual transactions that you shouldn't be able to afford for boat purchases. Um, they go through credit card details. They're already analysing something like 180 billion transactions wow. each year. Uh, the ATO actually has the largest computer in Australia. Um, <laughs> okay. Bureau of, the Bureau of Meteorology has the second largest. Um, <laughs> so the data that they're analysing now is massive. And I can actually see to the point where there will be no need to do individual tax returns because the ATO will have everything. Okay, I'd be pretty happy with that. Yeah. Well, the only thing they'll be missing is where you want to claim a deduction. Now, that's, that's actually how New Zealand do it at the moment, but they're, they're not basing it off lifetime data. They're just basing it off some assumptions. So I think we're, we're moving quickly to a point where uh, uh, it'll literally be live, uh, which from a revenue collection point of view is really interesting. 
Okay. Um, so, so I suppose the, the takeout though is really that employers they've got to embrace this. In theory, they should have been doing it from one July, two thousand and nineteen. The tax office gave them a few months to get used to it, and there's different ways that you can actually embrace doing it. So there are free um, free software. You can do it through your normal accounting payroll systems. Um, so the important thing is just talk to your advisor. Um, they'll be able to steer you in what works best for you. Okay. Uh, the other thing I want to talk about just quickly is uh, a new type of contribution that we've been able to make into super since uh, 1 July 2018, and that's called the downsizer contributions. So these are essentially where you are selling your main residence after age 65 to, in theory, downsize, but you don't have to, and you can add $300,000 into super. Um, and if it's a joint-owned property, then you can put in um, $600,000, uh, regardless of work test and age and all those other requirements that normally apply. Uh, so there's been already over a billion dollars that's been contributed using this particular type of contribution. I think what's quite interesting, though, is uh, a lot of more a lot more people have tried to use it, but they haven't actually been eligible because they either they um, haven't owned the property for ten years, and the contract sale date was wasn't after one July two thousand eighteen. Uh, all the, the proceeds from the sale of the home weren't actually exempt from capital gains tax, so it was an investment property. Uh, if you don't meet those criteria, then you can't make it. So already 5,000 people have, have done it, and I think that um, it's a really good initiative to allow people to put money into super when they they sell their principal place of residence. Yeah, no, I think it's a great concept. Yeah. Excellent. And what have you got, Jared? All right, I've got three for us today. A little bit uh, left of left of field on some of these. My first one is there was a drone attack on a Saudi Arabian oil facility. Um, it sent some shockwaves through the investment markets. We've seen petrol a, prices. We've seen some spike in the uh, some oil stocks, um, but uh, it looks like they're going to be being production back online sooner than we thought. But what I really want to say, talk to was drones. Where to from here? This is just crazy. Well. It, it's really interesting because I think, it, well, Alphabet or Google, um, they're actually starting to do d drone deliveries now. I think down in Logan yeah. is, a, is a pilot area. So if you want a coffee, so instead of Uber Eats and someone turning up on their little motor, moped, uh, it can be a drone that delivers it for you. Yeah, I think Domino's would be right on top of this. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they would be. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the other one was um, there was someone has designed at home their own, uh, I don't know, you can't really call it a boat, but he, he's flown himself out across the water and gone fishing. And he's hooked himself to a, a chair and a drone and a, he's got a VB in the, in the side <laughs> pocket and he's taking himself fishing. So, so is, is that could that be the future of drones, essentially oh, single-person manned flight? It's an interesting world. Very yeah. excited. We have enough troubles driving cars. How are you going to be flying around? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that was my first topical topic. Second one was... Um, the BIS Oxford Economics property forecast predicts Brisbane will see the greatest national gain in housing prices, but not from an, for another couple of years um, until the remaining oversupply is consumed. They're predicting a 20% jump by 2022. So for someone like myself, I'm looking at the property market, seeing what's out there. I'll tell you what, those kind of numbers blow me away. Yeah, well, look, 
My perspective has always been, Jared, that the Brisbane property market typically has a big jump, then it plateaus for a number of years, and then it has a big jump again, plateaus for a number of years. It doesn't seem to have the volatility that Sydney and Melbourne do. It doesn't have the peaks and troughs within year, like within a year that mm. those markets do. We typically are more of a, a quick burn, we sit for a few years, a quick burn, we sit for a few years. Yeah. So that doesn't really surprise me because our property market has been pretty much plateaued for probably the last you know, seven, eight years. So you know, if you want to follow the, the seven-year economic theory of um, boom and bust, then we're about due for another uh, upturn in our in our market. Yeah, well, I just hope it just doesn't lead to a bit more FOMO, fear of missing out for some people. So we, I look forward to potentially getting a property um, specialist onto the show to talk to people about that. Yeah, good idea. My third one, which would be remiss of me not to talk to, but uh, with tax time come and gone and people probably getting some refunds, hopefully, um, where to spend your refund. So from my perspective, a focus on debt, so paying off those credit cards, um, repayments of a home loan or looking to put down some funds for that deposit, maybe starting an investment portfolio, getting your, your shares on the go and purchasing some, some stocks. And the fourth one, superannuation. And number five is invest in yourself or others. So there's a gentleman by the name of Michael Norton, who's a professor of Harvard Business School, and he's termed this phrase, happy money is spent on buying experiences, buying time, or spending it on others. Okay. So that was interesting to read. What about spending it on yourself? That's not an experience. Look, you and I could go down. <laughs> you and I could go down to the bar, and we could probably have a beer, and that'd be an enjoyable experience. That'd be money well spent, right? But that might be all I get back from the tax. <laughs> <laughs> so that were my three topical topics. Excellent. And moving on to our next segment is our deep dive discussion. Today we're joined with our special guest, Paul Green. Paul is a director here at Vincent's within our forensic accounting division. He has over twenty years' experience in the financial advisory space and is regularly called upon as an expert witness uh, for testimony in the courts. Um, Paul will give us a bit of insight today in regards to the Royal Commission and all things financial advisory, what the next couple of years will look like and what's the true value of financial advice. So I'm looking forward to that discussion uh, with Green. Um, it should be very interesting. It'll be a great discussion. Well, thanks for joining us today, Paul. So I suppose as a starting point, can you give us a bit of a summary around the Royal Commission that we've just had into the financial services sector? Yeah, sure, Brett. Um, well, firstly, there were over 10,000 submissions uh, received. Of those, um, surprisingly, only 12% related to superannuation, 9% to financial advice, 61% related to banking. So today we're obviously going to focus predominantly on the superannuation and, and financial advice. The final report uh, was issued earlier this year, uh, 1 February. Um, the current government gave their response on the 4th of February, largely um, supporting the uh, recommendations of the Royal Commission. Um, the opposition then, um, uh, which carries less weight, these days because the election has now passed, uh, gave their response uh, later on in February, also supporting uh, broadly the recommendations of, of, of the Commission. Um, I, I, I guess when we look at the Royal Commission, we need to be careful of a, of a number of points. The first is um, 
generally the matters that they addressed were matters um, of concern. So they were problems that people had identified. Uh, so we've got to be careful to put it in perspective. It's it's not a um, the the recommendations, whilst they are useful, doesn't mean um, that the entire uh, industry was corrupt yeah, uh, right. or providing inappropriate advice, et cetera, et cetera. So, so we do need to, uh, to be a bit mindful of that. We also need to be mindful that largely uh, the Royal Commission investigated uh, the big banks and the big financial institutions such as AMP. And they're uniquely placed compared to a lot of other advisors in, in the market in that they were both uh, advisors and the products and and, um, in and, and investments that they're recommending um, were also within uh, their circle of influence. Yeah. So they had far more significant conflicts of interest that they had to manage. Um, also, they're massive organisations, so they're trying to uh, manage and control what's essentially professional advice being provided by thousands of advisors nationwide. Mm. Um, lots of challenges there and and obviously when you've got large organisations like that, the risk of, of things going astray at an at a individual advisor level or even in a systematic way are obviously a lot higher than um, what uh, a lot of other financial advisors in in uh, in the marketplace would be. So, so I think we do need to be um, a little bit mindful of that. Yeah, well, basically, they're damned if they do, damned if they don't, because the banks they have shareholders, so they have to try and do the best they can for their shareholders. So they put incentives in place to try and get their advisors to make more money, which therefore make more money for their shareholders. That, though, led to the ethical dilemmas that many had yeah. where they were doing things they shouldn't have been doing. Yeah. Are you acting in the client's best interest? Client's best mm. interest. So it's, I think trying to find that balance is where the banks particularly and the, those large finance institutions have really struggled because they were basically putting their own interests before that of the client. Yeah, and I think even the remuneration models uh, lent themselves to uh, abuse um, where... Um, if, if we peel back what financial advice is, firstly, it's, it's advice as to strategy. And secondly, it's advice as to, if necessary, what sorts of investments you might make yeah, to help that, um, yeah. help that help that strategy, strategy flow out. Now, when you are the, the owner of product, um, there's a tendency, particularly where you've got remuneration models, uh, based on, um, ins- you know, where there's incentives to actually sell more product, you've got this massive conflict um, where my sense of it was they raced through the advice aspect of, of their contract with the client and jumped straight into the investment yeah. uh, or, or insurance product yes, side of it. Right. So they were selling, not advising, and I think yeah. that's uh, one of the cultural things that, um in a sense, has been identified, but but I think the challenge with the industry generally is you've got a, a number of hands trying to guide it. So you've got uh, the regulation. So we've always had certain uh, laws in the Corporations Act dealing with financial advice, deals with stockbrokers, um, any any product advisors. You've also got 
uh, professional guidelines. So the Financial Planning Association, the yeah. Institute of Chartered ethical Accountants. Co- ethical codes of conduct yeah, and things like that. They're there um, guiding as well. And then, then the third thing you've got, uh, which applies to everybody, is the common law duties to actually act in the best interests of clients. And so the the Royal Commission is only really addressing the regulatory side of it. And so there's, there's been responses, I guess, at a, uh, at a professional level as well um, going forward and, and how that will work with the regulations to try to produce a, um, uh, a lower risk environment for some of the systemic problems that these large organisations have had. Uh, and it's not to say that smaller financial advisors haven't fallen foul of um, uh, greed and, uh, and and having uh, the client's best interests um, reduced to a lower level below their own interests. Um, and, and negligent advice will always be everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think it's 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 important that uh, a client, um, you know, the buyer beware. Yes. Um, they're, they're mindful of who they're dealing with. Um, and I think later on we're going to have a chat about the sorts of things that uh, a client um, should be thinking when they're, when they're choosing an advisor or indeed once they've chosen an advisor in engaging with, uh, Absolutely. with the advisor. So do you think that the everything's now been handed down, we've seen the outcomes that have come through, with the government's response, do you see anything changing? Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, I was a bit... Um, I was a bit disappointed that some of the penalties weren't weren't harsher for for the organisation. So at the individual level, um, certainly what I've noticed is uh, coupled with the, the findings, uh, APRA and ASIC have been given a war chest of money, and I know certainly that ASIC are on the witch hunt. They're, yeah, uh, they're chasing yeah. people uh, to the corners of the earth. Well, I was reading um, the other day there's something like 96 advisors that they're investigating at the right now. So yeah, you know, clearly they are on the on the on the witch hunt. Yeah, and 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 uh, what what I'm aware of at the moment is they're prosecuting uh, to the death. So in other words, in I think prior to the Royal Commission, they might have done a, a bit of a sweetheart deal with a, a large institution, said, "Oh, well, look, you know, we'll just levy you a, a a modest fine or whatever the case may be." The new regime post the Royal Commission. They're actually striking people out. There's five-year bans from advising. There's there's lifetime bans from advising. Um, there's penalties to the um, the uh, license holder as well. So rather than just striking out the individual, uh, there's far more dire consequences um, for the owners of licenses when they're appointing authorised reps to make sure they're putting the right people yeah. on. Uh, I think that's been um, really useful, certainly in, in in stamping out that selling culture mm. and and flagrant disregard for clients' best interests. Yes, the part that I think it's always hard to deal with is just day to day negligence, where people are incompetent uh, because that's not a willful act. Um, it's not something that an organisation uh, encourages, but my view of the population of Australia and the population of advisors is there quite simply isn't enough competent 
advisors by a long way. Well, what's to the meet, statistics? To meet the is it something like only twenty percent of our population in Australia actually gets financial advice? Mm. So eighty yeah. percent of the market still even isn't even seeking financial advice. And so we're about to change that ratio. And it's interesting you say that though, Paul, because we're about to go through this whole new educational standard for financial advisors over the next few years, and they're actually expecting about thirty to thirty-five percent of those advisors that are currently advising clients to basically stop practising, to fall out of the system. So that means we're going to have less advisors servicing clients and presumably because the compliance cost and the education cost is going up, it's going to be even more expensive to seek advice so that 20 might drop to 15. Yeah, potentially. Yes. Yeah. So, so, then, so that's the corporate side of it. That's for the advisors. We've seen the penalties. So what does, what does it mean for everyday Aussies? Yeah, well... Um, this might sound um, uh, a bit trite, but I actually don't think the regime or the way consumers uh, deal with this should change much because if you go back over the years, and I've been involved in a lot of um, reviews of, of negligent advice, one of the key problems is, is what I just touched on before, people who are either completely incompetent um, uh, or in, in some other way, a negligent. Now, it's hard to see to identify that because people don't uh, have signs hanging on their chest saying, I'm a competent advisor, and another one saying, I'm incompetent. <laughs> Make it easier, wouldn't it? So I think it's um, there's, there's a number of key things that you need to, um, to, to give some thought to. Now, over the years, the Financial Planning Association and their professional guidelines has not changed. The client's best interests have always been at the forefront yes. of those advisors. Absolutely. If they've complied with the professional standards. So I would say to um, anybody who's who's talking to an advisor, um, just try to understand their ethics, you know, what 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 they're actually thinking. Um, because a good advisor who was compliant 10 years ago will still be compliant with the regulations that are coming through the Royal Commission. And I say that because the regulations really are codifying what good practitioners have been doing for many years as well. So from the consumer's point of view, uh, certainly if they go to a large institution like a bank or an AMP or, or the like, they will see a much thicker paperwork, uh, probably more invested time in the client, so the client won't be whisk, whisked in and whisked out. Yep, and, so uh, be a com heavy close. compliance focus. A lot of compliance there. focus. But if you're dealing with a really good, competent um, professional advisor, um, they won't change much. They'll still have easygoing conversations. The process to get you to ultimately invest will be in a relaxed format. It won't be something where you meet them on Friday and all of a sudden you're investing on Friday. If it takes you three months to get comfortable with the process, a good advisor um, will be exactly the same as what they were mm. some time ago. So I think it's largely going to be around, um, so I think a couple of things will happen. Obviously, a heavier compliance focus at, at the at the big institutions, and that's going to potentially lead to an increase in the cost of actually delivering advice in the mm, incubator. Correct. And those fees might flow on and then decline. That's right. I think the other thing is there'll be a shortage of advisors, as as Brett said. There'll be people who just leave. They'll know that 
Um, not that the game's up. For some, they'll say yes, the game's up. I've been I've been selling when I should have been advising. But there'll be others that say, you know what? Now I'm not even up to the changes that are necessary to uh, move into this new regime. So uh, if I can find a young fellow who wants to buy my business, or um, then uh, then I'll move on. And so you can see that um, there's a lot of flux around with ownerships of. Of businesses, yeah. as, but as there's well also this increase in education, and then hopefully that's going to flow through to an improved quality of advice that's going to come from. The yeah, but I think I mean if you if you look forward at the uh, uh, FASIA education program, you're looking at three to five years. Mm. Um, and as I said, I think there's such a shortfall of um, advisors that it could be a generation before we actually get the right. Uh, pairing of, of of the population that needs advice and uh, a, a population of competent competent advisors. Yeah. But saying that they are bringing the component of the exam around phasia is a, the ethical component we have to pass within the next couple of years. So yeah. that ethical focus, all advisors must pass. Yeah. Then there'll be the educational standard. And there's a lot of ongoing ethical requirements around those those changes too. Ten hours of education each year on ethics. So to me, that's a real focus of they've identified, you know, as you're saying, Paul, that the ethics that that people have un- that have had in giving advice clearly haven't met to the the pub test, if I can put it that way. They haven't yeah. met the you know the standard that should be expected of the competent advisors. Yeah, and I, I think um, I, I think that focus is absolutely right. Uh, um, in my experience, it's been the ethics that have failed. Um, a lot of people over the years have thought they're getting a certain service from their advisor and the advisors thought that they're giving a much narrower piece of advice. And it's really at the foot of the advisor to make sure that everyone understands what's what, what the service offering is. And if the service offering falls short, then the advisor must also advise why it's fallen short and who they might see um, to pick up the to fill in the gap, so yeah. I, I don't do any work in um, uh, in, in in mortgage broking, but um, you would never leave the client um, without a proper review of of their loan position if you're doing a, a proper financial plan. So you don't just leave it unaddressed, or you don't leave their estate planning issues unaddressed. You mightn't do it, but you're actually responsible ethically for making sure those things are touched off. So, again, as I said, there was seemed to have been a big rush to get to investing people's money mm-hmm. and not yeah. really talking about And I think that's a common misconception yeah. in the marketplace that it's financial advice. If I'm wealthy, that's the people who go seek financial advice. That's yeah. just not the case. There's all those other aspects of an individual's life, the debt management strategies, the cash flow, and we'll touch – on those in in our podcast going forward. But the concept of just being focused on investments isn't the sole focus of an, a financial advisor's role. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, again, I don't want to appear uh, trite, but um, when you go, I think when a client goes and sees a financial advisor, they shouldn't be trying to get the best investment returns uh, possible. That That should not actually be their goal because there's plenty of ways to produce higher returns, and that's to take higher risk. Now, yeah. the the right outcome is not to have 
very poor investments. But if you've got a, if you've got the right strategy, so you're hedged from a lot of taxation, so you're using superannuation, those sorts of things, and you're not taking more risk than you actually need to meet your goals, that's the journey that most clients want to go on. Now, of course, there are people who, if you're promising, uh, not promising, but if the historical return on the stock market's been 10 or 11%, there are people who want to get 15%. Well, um, I don't know who they go to see because, as, as you would know, plenty of people who promise much higher returns can only generally deliver those with much higher risk. Now, whether the client uh, ultimately wants to take those risks, that's up that's up to them. But you can't promise higher returns at a lower risk. No, the, 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 those, those situations actually don't exist. And mm. I think I think people need to be a little bit careful that financial advice is a journey. It's not stock picking or, or sector yeah. picking. We're not yeah. saying we're all out of property and we're all into shares yeah. and we're all it, out of shares. It's a long-term relationship. So we, as a financial advisor, we have an obligation to understand your goals and objectives, know where you're at now, and put that into a statement of advice, our recommendations. That document that we do, it's normally a lengthy document given all the compliance background. It's not a set and forget. Your no. circumstances change and you need to have a relationship with an advisor going forward that you can adapt those strategies that you have based on where you are in life, whether that's starting a family, whether that's transitioning into retirement, whatever it might be. And it's it's doing all those little trimmings along the way. If you can get a client alone, let's say they've got $750,000 in home loan and investment debt, um, if you can get them a half percent saving on that for the rest of their lives, that's good money management. Yep, we're not absolutely. taking, we're not increasing the risk, we're, we're minimising the cost. If there are better ways to hedge ourselves against taxation, so if clients don't need money, obviously, um, trying to make um, la those larger possible contributions to superannuation, showing the client how doing those strategies produce hundreds of thousands of dollars of more retirement money, they're all big gains that come from using experts, not from taking risk. Mm -hmm. And um, a good advisor will make sure they can embrace all those opportunities and, and at least put them to the client and the client with the advisor can make sensible decisions about how they yeah. structure them. So I think there's a couple of key things. Your advisor is there to help you make smarter decisions around what you do with your money. And they're also there to give you clarity on where you're heading in the future. You, you communicate where you are now with your advisor and where you want to be, the advisor fills the gap okay. along the way. And you're, he is there as your trusted relationship to go to. So you need to be able to be open and honest with your advisor um, to, it's, to it's, go through that process. But it's funny you say that because quite often clients will hold information back, particularly around estate planning, because they're, they don't they don't want to open up their you know, what's their issues that might be in the in the closet somewhere mm. that, that need to come out, but they're almost embarrassed to. But that can have a huge implication on that end outcome for that estate yeah. planning piece. Yeah, no, they can give you that clear roadmap of where you're going and also be there as that accountability person. And then some people can get overwhelmed, so they're there to help you take action. Yep. And, I mean, even um, when you were saying uh, it's an ongoing path and, and circumstances change, somebody was asking me the other day, I was looking at an insurance matter, I said, well, in theory, your insurance should actually go down every year because if if I've got 
if at the moment I'm I'm 53 and I'm working till I'm 65, the life insurance I need is to replace the financial contribution I'll make to my family over the next 12 years. Well, in a year's time, it should actually be 11 twelfths of what it previously was mm-hmm. and then 10 twelfths and et cetera, et cetera. And clients have these policies that start off at a million and a half when they're 30 and then when they're 60, they're still paying insurance on $2 million because it's actually gone up each year. And that, again, is where an advisor is important because an advisor would reassess your insurance needs and say, well, actually, we don't need to pay 4000 in insurance this year. It actually only needs to be 3500 Now, that might only be $500, but where an advisor, I think, is very handy is in making sure you are running the most efficient um, structure that you can going forward to, to meet your Yeah, which is goals. the concept of uh, I've earned a dollar. Does that dollar need to be spent on repaying debt? Does it be put into investments? Does it need to be put into super? That's yeah. It, that changes for every single person. Yeah. That is not the same strategy that can be put for yourself, Brad, or myself, or yourself. Or. No. So that changes for every individual. Yeah. So, Paul, in your view, what constitutes poor advice then? Uh, well, poor advice is not having the discussion we've just had. So poor advice is, uh, so I've seen poor advice where estate planning on the data fact find is just two ticks. Do you have a will? Tick and tick. And why estate planning is very important, uh, Brett, uh, is this. A, a client can actually be put into a position where they take more risk with their investments than they need to because somebody hasn't asked this simple question. Do you want all your investment wealth um, handed down to the next generation? Do you want it to grow to be handed down to the next generation? Or are you happy for your million dollars when you retire to be only worth 300000 when when you die? Because if we can actually um, uh, guardedly use some of your capital to fund your living needs, you can either have a higher living need, uh, a higher living standard for the same risk, or you can have the same living standard but have less risk. So if you're a client, if you're a client who is nervous, um, why would you take risk to give more to your beneficiaries if you're going to have a very anxious last 25 years of your life? And if you actually engage with the younger generation, they'd say, you're crazy. Why would you be doing that for us? We're we're going well enough, well mm. enough as it is. So there's a really simple thing. You know, I need to actually understand the client to properly give yeah. give that uh, that type. But of if advice. you looked at those numbers, that is a material oh, difference huge. in yeah. the strategy that you take mm. in with those. Just that simple question of mm. asking, what do you want left for your your yeah. estate? So I think I think a lot of poor advisors. Uh, um, have presumptions about a client. So clients walk in the door and they just see whatever they see and they start to advise to what they see rather than what they hear from the client. And so that's why I'm sort of suggesting that um, a client should be uh, alert to somebody who meets them on Monday and is giving them investment advice on Friday. That getting to know the client can take a long time. And if you ask a client around that estate issue, and as you rightfully said, many of them are very guarded, um, 
it might take three months to break that client down, but but it's an it's a pretty important uh, piece of information. It it in some ways is like going to a doctor, having to fess up. Um, all, all, all sorts of uh, it can be things that might, might be emba- yeah, you might feel are embarrassing. And- Even if it's for those people that are might have, it's okay, say you're, you're 40, 45, and you, you can have this level of um, uncertainty about how you've progressed and nearly embarrassed if you haven't achieved the goals and objectives. So then to turn around and talk to an advisor and say, look, I actually think, feel like I've fallen short can be a bit of an embarrassing mm. conversation. So well, you've got to be able to do it. And it's certainly that, but I was actually at a conference last week and um, there was an advisor there who was talking about this sort of topic around estate planning. Clients actually telling them, you know, their what they their needs and wants are. Mm. Um, the client had been married for fourteen years, and then being clients of this financial advisor for ten years plus. And it wasn't until recently that the the advisor found out the client actually had a twelve year old son to another lady. Yeah, even though they'd been right. married for 14 years. So there'd been an affair a couple of years yeah. in and, yeah, they had a had a child outside of the marriage, but that had never come through. Now, it's a massive estate planning issue um, that if the advisor doesn't know about it, then they can't plan for it. They can't, you know, put contingencies in place. Well, I think the other issue with poor advice um, is not telling it as it is. It, it's yeah. a, a lot of advisors... Um, Try to keep keep the conversation comfortable. So by that I mean uh, you can you can have clients who come in who have absolutely no sense of of where they are, and they say oh, I want to retire in two years, and you look at the numbers and you say, well, it's not that, that's not 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 possible. And so a poor advisor might try to make a small amount of money produce extraordinary amounts of, of of income or wealth over a short period of time to try to meet the client's wishes, but that's not good advice. The right advice is to say, well, you know what, you're actually X hundred thousand dollars short, so that's either going to mean your lifestyle needs to come down or you need to work longer. Now, that doesn't mean you need to work longer full time. It might be that you need to work part-time for a number of years, but you'd work the numbers through and say in a sensible in a sensible way, here are your your options to try to retire and enjoy this type of lifestyle. Not be the advisor shouldn't be fearful of telling a client something that they don't necessarily want to hear. Yeah. And and I think that that can be a failing. And I think the other failing is thinking um you can do better managing people's money than somebody else. That, yes. that, that sort of, uh, in some cases, it can be uh, an arrogance. Um, in, in other cases, it can be just misguided belief that the institution you're with um, is uh, has better research, per, you know, permanently than another institution. As you'd all know, um, sometimes. Um, Trading shares in a particular year will produce a much better gain than just holding shares. And then in other years, holding shares produces significantly better gains than trading shares. Yeah, the concept of passive versus active. Yep. And, and so you've got all these sort of styles, and every dog has its day. And I think clients really need to get away from that whole thing 
accept reasonable returns, plan with reasonable returns, but plan in a, in a, with a protection in their mind when they're nearing retirement because once they retire, there's no other incomes or, or, or cash flows that can prop up bad investment decisions. So you want to try to stay a bit, a bit mainstream, I, I feel, because the risk of outperforming uh, uh, an average return is that you might significantly underperform yeah. uh, an average return. So, I, and as I say, I think there's plenty to be gained with an advisor trimming the edges and, and making the right decisions around superannuation, how you might restructure your borrowing so you're getting more tax relief, um, uh, taking up lending uh, facilities that have um, lower interest rates. Even- so that- the concept of holding particular assets in individuals' names, whether it be in your spouse sure. or in your name. Just yeah. the, the simple concept of, okay, we're going to buy this particular asset, whether it be shares or property, where should it be held? Should it be held in your name? No, I'm running a business, I might be at risk. So the concept of just purchasing an asset provides. Those are all benefits of um, with comprehensive financial advice. Yeah, and, and then even with people who've got um, more wealth as they enter retirement years than they need, there's a whole lot of issues around how they might allow the next generation to benefit from some of that wealth, but protecting <clears throat> that money from that next yeah. generation. And I think as we'll, we'll see a, a lot of this coming through now is this generational wealth transfer. Yeah. So yeah. we're going to have ha- holding a lot more conversations around the purpose behind these funds and how it transitions to that next generation. Mm. So I think the new era of financial advice is starting to come through. So we've discussed the Royal Commission, the outcomes of that. If someone's going to walk into a and see a financial advisor tomorrow, what are a few questions that you put to them to say, okay, this is some things you probably need to ask your advisor to know that this is going to be a trusted relationship and, he, and that individual is going to deliver me. Yeah, so I, I mentioned one earlier. One was around the ethics of of the advisor. So um, without pointedly saying. Tell me about your ethics. Um, <laughs> you can probably understand it through uh, asking them some questions about their history, how they go about the advising process. Um, I, I think a, a relatively pointed question would be um, to see the response from the advisor. If I only got strategy, would, would you be happy only to give me strategy advice? If I was to mm. just get strategy advice from you, um, uh, I could then go and do my own investments, and and not that you necessarily would, but you you I think you get different types of responses. Um, I think the remuneration is interesting as well. If if you're only being remunerated um, for placing investments, then 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 that advisor's got a vested interest in placing the most amount of money. Um, the challenge with that is. Um, a lot of the old business value models for financial advisors used to be a multiple of funds under management. Yeah. So if a client had half a million dollars, if I could get them to borrow another half a million dollars through a margin loan, I would have their original half million, the extra half million that they invested through the margin loan, and the margin loan itself would be counted as a half million. So I've actually... Trebled, trebled the value of that client's that client's business. So, where clients a sense 
that it's all about a rush to investments and maximising the amount of money invested. I think they should uh, they should be alert to that. Um, obviously, ask about their experience and qualifications. Uh, I, I think on the back of the Royal Commission, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say you shouldn't go to a large institution, but the large institutions, regardless of these new regulations, still have major conflicts of interest uh, by being advisors of a product and um, and the providers of the product. So, so the entire institution gets... Uh, advisor fees, then they get product placement fees, then they get the advisor itself themselves get uh, an ongoing fee, and then the institution also gets a funds management fee. So there's there's um, incredible uh, financial benefits that come to those large institutions by having you invest with them, but, uh, if, where you probably wouldn't advise those. But uh, if, if you've got clarity products. on those fee structures, if, if that advisor's come to you and they've gone, this is where everyone's taking their fees, here is all the fee structure, if you as the client, is, if you're happy with that and you believe that the service and the quality is there, then I think that's still okay. That's fine. Yeah, but but but, but you're an inexperienced client what are you measuring that? So, so I tell you that through the process we're going to take four percent. Yeah. What does that mean to you? You've yeah, got, okay. you've, got so you've actually average, got, yeah. you've got no benchmark. So, the true disclosure would be to say, uh, I'm with AMP. We largely only recommend AMP products. The risks of me only providing uh, advice in relation to AMP products is obviously you're only with AMP. Our fee structures look like this. The average in the industry looks like this. So we're actually charging you more or less. Those sorts of advisors also need to, to make a true disclosure to a client would need to also advise of uh, other advisors that don't necessarily use managed funds. Yep. So we have clients that have direct share investments with a lower management ratio than these, these funds. We also have clients that do have funds because that, that that suits that suits the client. That's right. When you're talking to an advisor, you need to understand how narrow is the the type of advice that I'm getting. So so even if you're going to get an insurance policy, and you're looking at say income protection or um, total and permanent disablement policies, definitions are critical as to whether you'll get paid or not. This is unlike death, where with death you're either dead or you're not. <laughs> but but with TPD and uh, income protection, it's quite different. Which is why you want somebody in that space who can basically canvas the entire field of products, rather than five products that uh, are, are housed by Commonwealth Bank or or NAB or uh, MLC or or whoever the, the case may be. So trying to understand uh, what they can advise on and, more importantly, what they can't yeah. and what the implications are to you of what they can't advise on is important. So if you actually think, no, I'd like shares, um, the Commonwealth Bank financial planner and A&P financial planner can't give you that advice. Mm. 
Now, if they're properly acting in your best interest, they'll tell you that and provide an opportunity to actually get that part of the advice as part of their overall offering. Um, so trying to understand what they do and what they don't do, I think, uh, is pretty important. And so that goes to their their uh, independence, I guess, and, and the breadth of the advice that they can give. Um, and then the other thing I'd ask, I would always ask, is about the cost structure. So what the cost structure looks like compared to uh, other providers and, and, uh, um, and those sorts of things. So if you're, if you're losing 3 or 4% through the, through the structure, that's a lot when the, the types of returns in balanced funds and um, the share market's only sort of 8 to 10%. You're giving away a lot of money in, uh, in advisor fees. So talking to them about costs, I think, is pretty important. But to me, uh, the number one question is, um, uh, can you pay that advisor to tell you to do nothing? And by that I mean uh, you pay a, an advisor to look over all your affairs and and can they be comfortable to tell you, you know what, I think this is fine, do nothing? Because I think there'd be a lot of people with experiences who've had money in the bank and they're comfortable with money in the bank and the next thing they're invested in a, in a fund because somebody's given them a phone call. Sometimes do nothing is the right advice. Yeah. Uh, it's hard to give that advice because, um, uh, you know, it, it feels like there must be something to be done, but oftentimes the right advice is to do nothing. And if, a, if, but if the advisor can't be remunerated for reviewing and coming up with a do-nothing advice, then they probably don't have your best interests at heart. They probably still have their own financial interests ahead of mm. yours, yeah. which put, does put you in a uh, precarious position. Yeah, and that really comes back to that whole risk return thing. If you've got someone who's got $8 million and even if they just have that sitting in the bank and that's generating, say, eighty or $100,000 a year of income, if that's enough for them to live off, then they don't need to do anything. No, no. And so you can have a lot of advisors think, well, that's a waste. Yeah. But it's not a waste. It's not a waste for the client. For the client. Yeah. It might, you might think it's a waste. And you should never be in a position where you think you know better for the client. I think that's um, that's pretty important. Yeah. I mean, we, we had a client, I remember one time, uh, well, during the GFC and, and their, their assets uh, – basically dropped by 40%. They were incredibly worried about it. And I said, well, the assets that you've got should continue to produce the income you need to fund your lifestyle. I said, even if that drops off 10%, you're, going, you're still going to be comfortable. And they walked away like, like a piano had been taken off their back. They were, they were just so relieved because I said, that's how we've planned your strategy. Our strategy is that you will draw... X dollars a year, and the assets uh, will just move up and down with with the way the market moves, and ultimately, at some point in the future, um, uh, you know they'll be passed on to the next generation. And, and so they were earlier retirees, so they they did want their income to grow, and and that naturally meant that the assets ultimately would grow as well. So they had a lot of shares, and they got they got moved around a bit, but. Um, that's how you should advise, not not tell that client um, we necessarily 
for stock traders and we're going to move money around every month to maximise the gain. That that was never in this client's mind. In their mind, they, he he just wanted to know that he and his wife uh, would still be able to go on the, the holiday to, to Spain or wherever yeah, it was. Consistent, and, reliable income stream. And, and, and that's what we set up. And, and look, it doesn't shoot the lights out. They know that. But they also know that it's very solid in terms of producing what they want year after year. So, you know, hopefully it contributes to them having a, a happy retirement and, and you know, I mean, markets do move up and down, but now they're they're educated, um, you know, they're, they're pretty comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. All right, well, that probably wraps things up. We'll go through a summary. Grab me if I'd um, pick me up on anything that I might miss. But so Royal Commission, we've seen some big changes, some penalties handed down. It has changed the face of advice and other aspects of the industry. Um, For everyday Aussies, we will see some changes, potentially increasing compliance. The client experience is going to change. So there'll be probably a longer client experience and potentially the cost may increase as well. There is significant value in actually seeking professional advisor and the relationship there. Definitely. But the key is um, having finding someone that you can build rapport with Mm. Get, a, get some clarity around the way in which their, their, their fees are structured and how the costs are feed through to you. Um, uh, but and seeking that ethics. advice. And their ethics. Yeah. Going from there. So is there anything else you wanted to add, Brett? No. Paul, no. on a summary, it's pretty well the wrap. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Paul. My I hope pleasure. Uh, our listeners have got some insight some there. Insight, yeah. yeah. So, <clears throat> and uh, that's the wrap. All right. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. So we have Michael back today for our very first tasting. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Uh, thanks, guys. Yeah, Michael. So what do we have today? Well, I uh, went downstairs, pulled out a bottle last night. I thought we'd start with a nice Shiraz from the Barossa area in South Australia. Um, this particular one, it's a the Dandelion Lionheart. Um, it's a 2017, and you can probably pick this one up from... 20 to 30 bucks a bottle, and then go to Dan Murphy's, you might get a little bit less. There you go, Brett. That's one for you. That's in my price range. (laughs) So, um, look, just as far as these tasting notes, the way I just thought we'd do it, I mean, you know, you just sit there and more or less it's just having a bit of a, like they say, a bit of a journey. So it's, you know, having a look at it, having a look at the colour, telling what you're getting on your nose, you know, when you when you uh, when you smell it, and then equally, what's the sort of taste of it? So, um, well, that's the best part for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, this particular one, um, let's let's just have a go. Let's have a look and see what we think. So, I mean, just looking at that, I mean, that's pretty dark. I mean, you know, it's a really rich sort of purple, sort of colour, deep purple, you know, sort of almost black. So, you know, it's quite interesting when you have a look at him there. Um, And, I mean, just on the nose, I'm just getting these really strong sort of like blackberries, you know, that sort of stuff. And you're actually getting a bit of that, you know, that fennely spicy sort of spicy thing. I mean, you ever go there, Jared? Tell us what you think. Okay. Yeah, I can certainly t- smell those berries coming through. That's for sure. So uh, yeah, it's a you know it's 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 pretty 
pretty interesting sort of on the nose there. Um, I mean, might as well give me a little bit of a taste. It's, it's after five o'clock. Everything's all right. <laughs> Somewhere um, in the world it is anyway. <laughs> um, so, I mean, just tasting that. I mean, that's that's pretty sort of medium body, you know, medium to full body. Um, I mean, and, and it's got the very similar. It's got that sort of real sort of, I mean, so it's plummy. It's, you know, it's sort of, um, you know, with sort of like that licorice and a bit of spice in it. So, um, I mean, mm. that's what I'm getting. I mean, it's that's very, really nice, actually. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's good. Um, I mean, just on the palate. It's, you know, it's actually, I think it's, you know, this has got a, you know, it's a 2017. You can still taste it's pretty young. Um, I mean, I'm not sure exactly, you know, how well the uh, the sort of thing would keep, but um, so do you think I mean, you, that's, do you think you'd you know, keep it for a couple of years to see if those, if those flavours came out a bit more or? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, like I said, you know, that's a pretty, pretty good for a, uh, you know, 20, 20 buck bottle of wine. Um, so I think I, I think I picked up a case. Uh, I'll uh, <laughs> I'll leave five or six of them uh, <laughs> there. And um, uh, but yeah, no, that 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 is actually that is quite good. That's that's really really good. Very nice. I think it's on the dry side of sweet, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it is. I mean, um, but yeah, you, I mean, you taste that again and 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 smell that again. You. Geez, those dark berries really come through. Very nice. All right. Well, I think I'll be heading down to the Barossa shortly. In the back of that. <laughs> thank you very much, Michael. And we look forward to our next episode. Sounds good, guys. Catch ya. Thanks, Michael. Okay. So next, let's jump into our economic summary provided by Deloitte. What was your takeaways from here, Brad? Probably the two negative yields. What the hell are they? Yeah. And I'm- trade war. Yeah. Look, I. Negative yields is I find fascinating because not that long ago we're hearing how we were having these the bond markets were in negative or producing negative yields and that means we're having a recession because that's been a a predeterminant for the last however many recessions that it means that one's coming. Yes. Now, I would have thought that if the GFC has taught us nothing, that history does not predicate the future, and that sometimes there is just a new norm. Is this just a new norm? That's um, right. This low interest rate environment could yeah. be the new norm. Like when I was growing up, when I was seventeen, I remember when I had a term deposit that gave me an interest rate of eighteen percent. Now, and home loans were you know twenty two percent. If you would have at that time said to anyone that you could go and borrow money to buy a house that had an interest rate with a two or a three in front of it, they would have just laughed at you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, so is this just a part of a new cycle. Um, is it because we never actually dealt with the GFC properly? So instead of it being the normal coming out of a recession, we've just got this low, slow burn. Is that an upward burn or a downward burn? We don't really know yet. Yeah. So here in Australia, obviously, we're not in this negative yield environment yet, but their talk in this economic um, article that Germany, France and Japan are the three countries that are now issuing and have significant amounts of negative yield yielding debt. What does that mean for the individuals over there? Like an individual over there, are they going to the bank and actually borrowing 
and the banks paying them money to go and buy a house or use funds? Well, look, ultimately, I suppose let's take it back a step. Banks have to borrow money from somewhere. So typically they will borrow banks from another country. So here in Australia, the Commonwealth Bank, for argument's sake, they will source whatever money they need, either from the Reserve Bank of Australia or they will go overseas and borrow money from a a bank in America or a a foreign country or something like that. So the cost that they get to borrow at, whether that be 1% or 2%, say in in Australia, is then lead has a direct impact to what they then can charge the consumer. Correct. So obviously if say and let's keep it simple, let's say they're borrowing from the from the Reserve Bank and that's at what one and a half percent at the moment. <clears throat> so that means that their cost of funds before thinking about their paying staff, paying the having the branches, paying for the ivory towers in every capital city, all that sort of thing is one and a half percent. Then they have to factor in how much profit or recovery do we need to make on those expenses so we can actually Run have a business. viable business That's right. and pay shareholders and do all those sort of things that we have to do. Now, at the moment, I, look, I don't know the exact interest rate. Let's just call it 4% for, for the sake of the argument. So that means that if half a percent of that 4% is their profit, 1.5% is their cost of funds, 2%, is they're running the business. Yeah. So in its simplistic form, that's how it's designed to work. So if we ever get to a point of having negative interest rates from the Reserve Bank here in Australia, it just means that that first 1.5% drops. Yeah. So instead of it being 1.5%, if it's negative 0.5, then in theory, the 4% that I'm borrowing from the Reserve Bank, uh, sorry, that I'm borrowing from the Commonwealth Bank, drops to 2%. Yeah, which then leads this downward spiral where we have the negative interest rate environments, yep. they drop interest rates to try and stimulate the economy, and that's get what people out there and to. spending. There's no buffer there anymore. No. Once we go into negatives, there's no buffer. Yeah. How do they actually go about stimulating the economy if something? Well, look, essentially, there's two types of economic theory. So you have monetary policy and fiscal policy. So this is monetary policy. Yes. How do you drive um, consumer behaviour through essentially letting them borrow money cheaply? Yeah. Now, the risk is with monetary policy that we have a lot of regulation, as we've already heard from Paul Green, most of the recommendations from the Royal Commission were actually based on the the banking side of the system. Now, the banks can't assume that interest rates will always stay at 2% or whatever it is. At some point, you've got to repay with interest. So even now... Interest rates are at four percent. They assume a seven percent interest rate. So, but that's now that's changed. So they've dropped that buffer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they you, they still they're assuming interest rates will rise at some point, yes. which they have to do. That's right. So you still got to repay the capital. You still have to repay whatever interest rate it is. So monetary policy works to an extent because regulation still kicks in and compliance still has an overarching influence in here. In my mind. Um, and people still need to actually spend the money and not that they're saving and not save it. So, you know, you mentioned before, Jared, you're looking at buying a house. Yeah. So if, let's say, you go and buy a house today, you've got to, there's got to be enough impetus there for you want to do that. That's right. So is that property, property prices going up? Is that interest rates being low? Is it a combination of all these things? Um, 
it all comes into that that investment mix, if you like, as to what makes a good decision. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, they're hoping that people will ultimately they might want to upsize, they might want to do renovations on their homes. Um, in Australia, we've we've seen a massive uptick in people renovating rather than replacing houses. Yes. Um, and some of that is probably because it's it's cheaper and easier. You don't have all the on costs of real estate agents, stamp duty or transfer duty and all that sort of rigmarole. But at the end of the day, the interest have dropped. There's more dollar in your pocket. Yeah. So therefore, you go and spend it on your property. You bring in the painter. You bring in the plumber. Yeah. They make money. Then they go spend. It's about trying to generate some that flow of income and cash around the economy to stimulate it. Yeah. And that, that's the theory of monetary policy. With fiscal policy, basically it's the government spending money. Yes. So infrastructure. So you know we've we've heard in the last few budgets, you know how they want to spend ten billion dollars doing all these different projects. Well, that's all great, but that all takes a lot of time. You know, it'll Cross River Rail is a great example here in Brisbane. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we've we've been talking about this for a number of years. It's not going to be finished, I don't think, until twenty twenty four, which we're already going to be at a at a point that it's it's needed, so to speak, because you know, there's already congestions on those train lines. Yeah, it's tough out there, that's for sure. Um, and, and this is some of the problem is that governments don't want to spend money until they really have to. And by that point, typically it's already past the point. Yeah. So they're building for what we needed, not what the future allows. There's a lag. Yeah. Mm. And then that feeds into this whole notion of um, productivity gains. So a productivity gain can be as simple as getting people to work quicker. So they can actually be productive in their day's environment. Right. So if it takes you half an hour to get to work, now in five years' time, if it takes you one hour, you've lost half an hour each way, an hour a day. That's a productivity loss. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So that's what when they say so when they talk about productivity gains, that's some of it. It's as simple as building infrastructure to move people around more efficiently so they can be productive in their lives. Either that being earning money or spending money. Yeah. Well, I certainly don't think this will be the last time we hold a conversation around these negative interest rates. It's around for it's going to be around for a lot longer. I would expect. I think this will be a topic we discuss more. Well, that's right. You know, you hear Donald Trump putting a lot of pressure on the Fed in America, saying he wants zero interest rates over there. Yeah. Because the Fed started to increase interest rates, and then the economy started to turn. They went, "Oh, hang on, maybe we shouldn't be doing this." Mm. So they've stopped. Probably a good lead-in. Trumpy, what's he up to with China? Trade wars. <clears throat> it's, uh, he just likes a fight, doesn't he? Oh, he, he drives the market. So every day Trump comes out with a tweet, the market goes one way or another. It's creating significant volatility. But from reading this, I'm getting a better understanding of what the trade war actually means. And I'll touch on it as we go, but it's the uncertainty. The yeah. uncertainty leads to people sitting on their hands and not taking action. So with over there, you've got, You've got two big powerhouses. They're going for it. Trump puts a 15% tariff on white goods. China retaliates and does something else. But what it does lead to is that a, sm- a small business in the US might be importing goods from China today to then create a new product and then try and sell that, on sell that to the rest of people around the world. So if they don't have certainty on how much those import costs are going to be, mm-hmm. they as soon as they do, they could go, okay, well, we might go to another country and we'll import our goods from somewhere else because we've now got stability on how much it costs and we've got know what our margin needs to be on our product and therefore we know what we can then charge to the market. 
whilst that's fluctuating around and the two governments are speculating on what that looks like, that uncertainty is what leads to concerns around the economy and the potential, the big R word, the recession, because mm-hmm. it stifles that growth. And I think that some of the driver behind what Trump's trying to achieve in some regards is that he, is, he doesn't necessarily believe in a free market. So he doesn't believe that everyone throughout the world should be able to buy and sell stuff with, with no impediment. He wants to have a manufacturing base in America. Yeah, the whole purpose is to bring manufacturing back into the US. Exactly. Now, which is all well and good, but ultimately people, the American consumer will pay more for the goods and services that they're currently receiving because it costs more to produce. So if it costs more, they can, they're um, paying more for it, that's where the recession potentially leads to because are they earning any more? Probably okay. not. Yeah, that's right. So all of a sudden people, they can't afford to buy whatever widget it was that they have been buying because it's now more expensive, so they don't. So people stop spending. So it almost has a negative correlation to what he's trying to achieve, uh, in my mind anyway. Yeah, well, I hope he sorts it out sooner rather than later, but I think this is going to it'll be like negative interest rates. I think we'll be reading about this in the economic section for a, yeah, well, a while it's, to come. And it, a lot of it comes back to if we could get him off Twitter, I think that everything would become a lot calmer. <laughs> um, it's probably true. Because it almost it's, is economic policy via 280 characters. Yeah. Uh, it's it's fascinating. It's We've never had an economic environment like it, you know, between the two essentially bulls of the global economy, essentially butting heads, one doing it via Twitter, the other one doing it as retaliation. And then obviously in the background, we've got this whole Brexit stuff going on and whatever that's going to look like and the impacts that's going to have on the two biggest European economies being Germany and the UK. That's right. You know, the, from a, a global point of view, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world economy. What that's going to mean for us here in Australia, who really knows? I was going to say nobody knows no. how that flows through. <clears throat> like at the moment, I think our exports are actually up because China's getting stuff from Australia as opposed to America. Mm-hmm. So it can be a positive, but it's that uncertainty. That's it. No, it's certainly an interesting read, and I'm sure we'll be touching on that further in due course. But um, I think that's pretty well the summary for today, bro. I think so, Jared. I think it's been an interesting discussion. It has been. So we look forward to you joining us next episode on Making Sense of It All, where we'll dive into the financial foundations of wealth creation. So remember, gain insight and take control. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Jared. The information contained in this podcast should not be interpreted as advice. It is general in nature and does not take into account your individual financial situation or needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property or financial decision, we recommend you consult with a licensed professional advisor to consider your unique circumstances. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned. 